and we're going to correlate ventricular system and major components of the nervous system. So we saw a picture that looked a bit like this previously. We were looking at the embryological sources of the brain and spinal cord. And what we're going to do is we're going to correlate these embryonic components of the brain with the adult components of the brain. And then we'll make sure that we understand which portions of the ventricular system are going to overlap with those. Now, the reason we've got the ventricles, of course, is that we started off with the nervous system as a flat plate, and then we kind of rolled it up, but left over in the inside of that rolled up piece of paper is going to be a cylinder, and we can see through that cylinder, but we've got to fill it with something, so we'll fill it with cerebrospinal fluid. So embryologically, then, we can go way back to the point when we actually had three parts of the brain and one spinal cord. We have this forebrain or the prosencephalon. We've got our midbrain or mesencephalon. And then way back here, we've got a kind of a funny name for something. It's the rhombencephalon. And the name rhombencephalon is referring to the geometric figure, a rhombus. What's a rhombus? Okay, so basically a kind of a diamond-shaped thing, if you want to think about it that way. And the giveaway here is that also diamond-shaped is going to be the floor of the fourth ventricle. So the rhombencephalon is going to be those structures that are going to be contributing to our fourth ventricular structure. So in any event, those three things are going to be transformed into five things plus the spinal cord. So the prosencephalon gives rise to the telencephalon and the diencephalon. The mesencephalon basically stays the same. The rhombencephalon is going to split into two things. It's called the metencephalon and the myelencephalon. Those are the structures that we've dealt with already. And then the myelon, myelon down below is going to become our spinal cord. So the adult structures then that we have to deal with, the telencephalon becomes our cerebral cortex, plus all that white matter underneath. Along that, with that, consider our basal ganglia, hippocampus, olfactory bulb, and you might even lump the amygdala in there as well. Now, diencephalon, the two big parts of it that we've talked about so far, we've talked about the thalamus and the hypothalamus. So those are major portions, but we've also got an epithalamus, which I'll show you in a little while. And another one that we've only made one allusion to so far, and it was very subtle. We really won't deal much with the subthalamus until we start dealing with motor systems, but it's called the subthalamus. But the big chunks are the thalamus and hypothalamus. Mesencephalon, that turns into our midbrain. The metencephalon becomes the pons and the cerebellum. Myelencephalon becomes the medulla. And of course, the myelon remains as the spinal cord. Now, correlate that with our ventricular structures. Remember, our cerebral hemispheres are exactly that. They're hemispheric in nature. So we'd expect to see a ventricle in each hemisphere. So those are the lateral ventricles. And then... Overlapping with the diencephalon, we've got a third ventricle, a narrowing of the ventricular system forming our cerebral aqueduct, and then our fourth ventricle is going to be shared by the pons and the medulla and all capped on top by the cerebellum. Now, as we travel from the medulla down to the spinal cord, actually as we get out of the fourth ventricle, we're still in the medulla, then the ventricular system shrinks down dramatically and becomes what we call a central canal. So the central canal will travel through the caudal end of the medulla and then travel almost the entire length of the spinal cord. So those represent the correlations then of the embryological, the adult structures of the nervous system and the ventricular system.
Let's take a look at the lateral ventricles. And the lateral ventricles are this big hook-shaped thing here. And these can be terribly, terribly confusing to figure out. But if you actually master the lateral ventricles, then the anatomy of the brain becomes extremely easy. And I'll show you how that works. What I want you to do, pretend we're going to study the left lateral ventricle. So I'll get you to take your left hand for me. So you stick your thumb out here. And you've got your wrist at the back. And then the index finger is down below. Your thumb is in the frontal lobe. Your wrist is in the occipital lobe. And the end of your finger down here, this is in kind of that temporal or parahippocampal region. Now, building on that, I'll do another example for you because how many, how many of you are masters of the caudate nucleus already? Okay, that would be about none of you. Okay, I did a quick head count there. Basically, here's all there is to the caudate nucleus. Are you ready? Take your other finger from your other hand. Stick it on the side of your thumb. That's caudate nucleus. Caudate nucleus is lateral wall, lateral wall, lateral wall, roof. That's the caudate nucleus. Are you excited? Does it drive you mad? Yes, thank you for saying that. I'm cheered up. Underneath, take your, take your little finger and stick it under your down here in your temporal region. Your little finger is now your hippocampus. This stuff's easy, isn't it? There's your hippocampus. This little finger, hippocampus. So study with your fingers. So the lateral wall of this structure, the roof of this structure, that's caudate. Hippocampus is down underneath here. Okay, so we can come back to that if you need further appreciations. Let's down here where your fing index finger was. That's in what we call sometimes the temporal horn of the lateral ventricle. They've called it inferior horn here. Uh, I prefer temporal horn. It kind of tells you more where the thing is. They call it the posterior horn. I call it the occipital horn. They call it the anterior horn. I really don't like that because that can be confused with the anterior horn of the spinal cord. This is frontal horn. In between the frontal horn and the occipital horn, so take a look at this. That's the body. And this little enlargement here right where we see the formation of our occipital horn. Do you see this little enlargement here? That's called the atrium. So that's the basic shape of the lateral ventricles. Now, of course, the ventricles, they can fill up with cerebrospinal fluid. And the cerebrospinal fluid has to go somewhere, so then it's got to move downstairs into our third ventricle. So let's look at these third ventricles and travel down at the fourth ventricle also. Take a look at this picture and some landmarks here to look for. We're going to look for, there's the corpus callosum. Hanging down from the corpus callosum in this mid-sagittal section, we see the septum pellucidum. And that's connected to that midline portion of the fornix. Remember that fornix terminated down here in the mammillary body. Now, much of the rest of what you can see 
is diencephalon. Here's the big round thalamus. Here's the triangular hypothalamus. And there is our optic chiasm. And I think you maybe had a turning point question the other day and somebody had a tumor blossoming off their pituitary and that pushed up against the optic chiasm. And then there's that mammillary body that we talked about. So the lateral walls now of your third ventricle, basically the, the obvious things you're going to look for are the thalamus and the hypothalamus. We've also got a posterior wall here. And I told you I was going to tell you a little bit about them. Remember I talked a little bit about a thing called the epithalamus? The biggest part of the epithalamus is this. That's the pineal. So the pineal sits right underneath this caudalmost portion or posteriormost portion corresponding to our corpus callosum. So then the question is, how did the cerebrospinal fluid get from the lateral ventricles into the third ventricle? Well, there happens to be a nice hole there. That's the interventricular foramen or foramen of Monroe. It goes by a variety of different names. It passes from the lateral ventricle down into the third ventricle. So that's our third ventricle. So if you saw dilation then of the third ventricle, what that basically means is you're kind of pushing the diencephalon laterally. Now let's move cerebrospinal fluid. We continue through our ventricular system. We've got to get out of the third ventricle. We want to go down into the fourth ventricle and we have to pass through the midbrain to do that. So let's pass through the midbrain. We see a narrowing of the ventricular system. That's our cerebral aqueduct. And remember, stuff does get stuck in there. So things to look for here. It's midbrain. I can see a piece of cranial nerve number three on the midline, ventrally. And another thing, I don't think we've really mentioned them yet. You notice you've got a little cap on top. Little cap is on top of our cerebral aqueduct. That's called the tectum or the roof. Now, cerebral aqueduct continues and then opens up wide again. Oops, excuse me. One, one too far. Opens up widely into our fourth ventricle. So you should see the fourth ventricle corresponds to pons, a bit of the medulla, and then the cap on top is going to be the cerebellum. Now, what we had to do in order to see down inside the fourth ventricle is we had to do a little bit of surgery. So what we've done is we've chopped through the base of the cerebellum. So I'm going to show you this from the side one more time here. So you can see what we want to do really is we want to glance down from above and see what's going on inside the fourth ventricle. So we're going to take a knife and we're going to slice through the little feet of the cerebellum. Once we've picked the cerebellum off the brain stem, you should see the little cut feet. So here we have the little feet of the cerebellum. They're called peduncles. We've got a superior cerebellar peduncle, a large middle cerebellar peduncle, and then a wee tiny little inferior cerebellar peduncle. And if you cut through all of those on both sides, you can pull the cerebellum off and look down inside the fourth ventricle, and there you see that rhomboid shape or that diamond shape. So that's the rhomboid fossa or the floor of the rhomboid fossa. Now, things to look for here, I would like to show you how we get cerebrospinal fluid out of this ventricle into the subarachnoid space. And we do that through either of two lateral apertures 
or one along the midline. So in each of these cases, cerebrospinal fluid is capable of escaping from inside the ventricle and it will slip between the brainstem and the cerebellum up above. But we removed the cerebellum, obviously, so we can't see that anymore. But if you take a look way out here laterally, right at the junction of the medulla and the pons, that's when you're gonna, where you're going to see what we call the foramina of Lushka. So cerebrospinal fluid can spill into the subarachnoid space here. So it escapes our ventricular system into the subarachnoid space. So lateral for Lushka. And then we have another midline aperture here, and that's called the foramen of Majandi. So that's the route that the cerebrospinal fluid can take then from the ventricle into the subarachnoid space. Now, if a little bit of cerebrospinal fluid decides that it doesn't just quite yet want to leave and enter the subarachnoid space, please note that you do have communications or continuations of our ventricular system down through the remainder of the medulla all the way down to the caudal end of the spinal cord. And that's in the form of the little wee tiny central canal that we find right in that area there. Not much passes through there, however. So what's going to happen then? Just a question for you. What happens if, let's say that we have, how about uh, maybe a choroid tumor and we block off these apertures? Which of the ventricles are going to swell up? I think I heard somebody say it. Somebody over here. Answer was all of them. Basically, everything is going to dilate because there's no way out of any of the uh, part of the ventricular system except through these th three holes. So if those holes are blocked off, lateral ventricles swell up, third ventricle, and also the fourth ventricle are going to swell up as well. Now, we've got to contribute to our formation of cerebrospinal fluid, and one of the ways we can do that is with choroid plexus. So basically what choroid plexus is, it's kind of pia matter that's grown inside the brain. And it forms a rich vascular bed fed by a variety of the arteries that we've talked about already. Let's take a look inside the lateral ventricle here. And we see that choroid plexus runs all the way from temporal horn region back into the atrium. There's quite a collection of the choroid plexus in the atrium. And then it continues through the body of the ventricular system. And then it slips down through our foramen of Monroe and occupies the roof of the third ventricle. So quite an array of different vessels are going to contribute to that. So maybe the, the middle and posterior cerebral arteries will be major contributors to the formation of cerebral spinal fluid for the lateral ventricular system. But then we see that the choroid plexus stops for a while. We don't have choroid plexus passing down into the cerebral aqueduct as a rule. But we see more of it, though, formed down in the fourth ventricle. Here, you can actually see it from the outside of the ventricular system. A little bit of it will spill out of the foramina of Lushka and Majandi. So you'll find the choroid plexus in the roof of the fourth ventricle, also adding to the supply of the cerebrospinal fluid. And I think if you look at this picture here, you can actually see choroid plexus right along the roof of the third ventricle. And where did it come from? It slipped through that foramen in row. And then we can even see little bits of it left over here. There's the foramen of Majandi. And those little fluffy things that we see in the foramen of Majandi, those correspond to choroid plexus also.
Okay, what do you think about this one? Okay, first off, is what kind of image is that you're looking at? Is it MR or CT? What do you think? It looks more CT-like to me. I'm not seeing too terribly uh, defined structure to it, but nonetheless, it's certainly adequate to our purposes. It's showing us clear problems. So let's find out what you think about this anyway. Oops. It's not telling us. Okay. I guess you all got it right. So let's see if we can work our way through this. Here, let me actually try to repull this one and see if it works. Or maybe this is the problem. No, it's just plain unhappy. Okay. We'll be unhappy as well. So let's look for the problems here. So we've got clear indications of difficulty. Which hemisphere is this that looks most affected? It looks like the right. We could have some problems over here on the left, but overwhelmingly we see difficulties on the right hemisphere. We've got dilation of, uh, let's see, we claim that we have normal third and fourth ventricles, but lateral ventricular abnormalities are present, so we are assuming then that the lateral ventricle on the right is the major problem here, and it certainly seems to be affected the worst. So how does cerebrospinal fluid get out of the lateral ventricle? Interventricular foramen. So remember, we've got a lateral ventricle here, a lateral ventricle here, and cerebrospinal fluid is going from both down into the third ventricle. So if we put a cork on the right side, lateral ventricle is going to swell up on the right side, but a lot of cerebrospinal fluid can still escape from the left side and travel down into the third ventricle. So I would tend to believe that our right interventricular foramen is the correct answer. Oh, it came open again. Okay. Why don't you just put in your answer there just so we know that you've answered that question. I'm pretty sure most of you are going to get it right now. Putting your keen powers... Ah, this thing has got a mind of its own. I think the computer's freezing up, actually. Okay, let's see. Yeah, it's kind of frozen up for some reason or another. There we go. So what I'll do... See if I can get us through this. Okay, it's very unhappy. It's very unhappy. So, we'll just wrap things up. And, and you know what we could do? What we could do is use this as an excuse to leave a few minutes early today. I won't tell anyone. Oh, boo. It came back. <laughs> I already had one foot out the door. Okay, where is that picture here? Where the heck is it? Okay. So let's let's just do the demo on that question then. So what's happened in our little person here is maybe from a very, very early stage in development they had a stenosis and then in time Obviously, this didn't get severe until they became about five years old, although they had some developmental delays. But at some point or another, more debris probably accumulated within that interventricular foramen. And so we had unilateral dilation 
of that lateral ventricle. So that's the problem in that particular person. Okay, let's look at CSF. And basically, we've, we've got the stuff in there, but why the heck do you have it? Well, if we didn't have it, your brain would be mushed down against the basal skull. And it would kind of wear away very, very quickly. So what we're going to do is we're going to throw some water in there. And so that's going to act like, the, basically the brain is going to act like a little cork and it's going to bob in the cerebrospinal fluid. Now, along with that, if you do get hit in the head, how many in here, I'll show of hands if you're daring, how many have, uh, have you have hurt your heads before? whole bunch of you. Now, when you think about a head injury, you know, we often have these dramatic ideas of somebody being thrown out of an automobile and smashing into a telephone pole and things like that. But they can be much more subtle than that. Have you ever decided you're, you're hungry and you want to go and have some of your favorite breakfast cereal, your, your fruit poopies or whatever you like to eat? And you're opening the cupboard and you... And there's that moment when the little angels are dancing around in front of your eyes. And then the next thought that races through your mind is, I hope no one saw that. Well, that moment when the little angels are dancing indicates that you've injured your brain. It doesn't take much to cause an injury to the brain. So fortunately, we do have this bunch of liquid in there so the brain can happily slosh around quite a bit and hopefully take some, uh, absorb some of that shock. There are obviously levels of acceleration that are just ridiculous beyond the capacity of the cerebrospinal fluid to protect you. So, for example, who likes pool parties in here? Do you like pool parties? Okay, so we're having a pool party this weekend, just so you know. Now, let's suppose that you decide you're at the pool party and you want to show off, so you get up on the diving board, you bounce up and down a few times, you go off the diving board and everyone's watching you, and then as you're flying through the air, you realize someone forgot to put water in the pool. And time begins to slow, and you're going, oh no. And that happens. Now, all kinds of nasty things are going on inside your head after that event has occurred. So for starters, take a look at this. Remember our little falx cerebri, which was sitting down between the lateral hemispheres? The base of the falx cerebri sits against the corpus callosum. So when the top of your head hits the pool, that happens. If you decide, I'm going to protect myself and turn my head kind of sideways, then this thing slaps back and forth against the cerebral hemispheres. So inside bits of your head, which are designed to protect you, are turning into weapons. Basically, the only friend you've got right now is the CSF. That's the only protection you've got left. We also have to maintain chemical stability inside the head, and this is going to contribute to that, so it'll act to sweep away uh, things like potassium, etc. And you can actually manipulate the, the volume of cerebrospinal fluid in order to help regulate the cerebral blood flow. So basically, if you have a reduction in cerebral blood flow, what you can do is divert the production of cerebrospinal fluid and therefore reduce intracranial pressure, and that can actually help compensate for that loss of blood flow. Contents. Okay, the production of the stuff, lots and lots of contributors to production. We've mentioned the choroid plexus, but also a variety of non-neural cells called ependymal cells and astrocytes, and then also blood vessels tied to the pia and the arachnoid. They all make contributions to the production of the CSF. And then we need active transport mechanisms to help you, so you're going to be pumping out 
your ions and the water is going to travel along with it. We don't produce the stuff very fast, only about a half a mil a minute. So what that means is if let's suppose you have a lumbar puncture and the little hole in the base of your back doesn't seal up very well and the cerebrospinal fluid leaks out. It's going to take about six hours to replenish your normal volume of cerebrospinal fluid. So it's quite a painful experience as a rule and it certainly doesn't occur very, very rapidly. Now the appearance of the CSF, it is absolutely crystal clear under normal circumstances. And the chemical constituents here, we normally compare them to plasma. And what we'll find is that the CSF is much lower in glucose, protein, and also potassium, calcium. You should find next to no cells inside as a general rule. As far as chloride and magnesium go, they tend to be higher in the, uh, in the CSF than in the serum. Uh, sodium is approximately the same, but may have a little bit of a bias towards the higher end of things as well. But the normal range of sodium in CSF and serum are largely going to overlap. Now, we've mentioned the circulation already, so we know we've got cerebrospinal fluid produced basically at all levels of the ventricular system. We know that the choroid plexus isn't represented at all levels, but we do have other contributors. And what we need to do then is produce it. We started off in the lateral ventricle, which we've drawn in the kind of a little phantom there pass through the interventricular foramen into the third ventricle, pass through the cerebral aqueduct into the fourth ventricle. We can get a little bit of traffic flowing through the central canal, but not a whole lot. But then we want to get the stuff out of the ventricular system, and we move it either laterally through the foramen of Lushka or medially through the foramen of Majandi. And as soon as we get out of those holes, we're in the subarachnoid space. Now, the subarachnoid space then is continuous all the way down to around vertebral S2 of the spinal cord. And it goes all the way inside the head. But our disposal mechanism for getting CSF out of our subarachnoid space, that is going to be mediated all the way up here, right along the midline. Remember our superior sagittal sinus. So that was that sinus. It's formed by the separation of those two layers of dura. The arachnoid layer is going to give rise to these little valves called granulations or villi. They poke into the vein, and then when the pressure is basically higher in the subarachnoid space than it is in the blood vessel, the cerebrospinal fluid is going to leak out. But if you get a reversal of that pressure gradient, then what's actually going to happen is the little valve collapses back on itself, so materials are not, as a rule, going to move from the blood back into the CSF. It's a one-way flow. Okay, let's look at our sinuses and veins of the brain. Here's our friend, the superior sagittal sinus. We're familiar with him. The blood typically is going to be flowing from anterior to posterior here. And the source of the blood, you should notice a lot of tiny vessels that are traveling away from the brain. These are in the subarachnoid space. So they leave the brain, they enter the subarachnoid space, and they want to move from the subarachnoid space into a structure like the superior sagittal sinus. And that, of course, is a danger point because when we have delicate vein interacting with big, miserably hard surface vein, such as the superior sagittal sinus, remember this is basically dura, when the person's brain sloshes around inside their head, the little delicate vein rips. And when the little delicate veins like these ones that we see scattered along here, when they rip, that's going to produce a subdural hemorrhage. 
So those are the little victims in the case of the subdural hemorrhage. But in any event, the blood is normally contributed to that superior sagittal sinus and it travels from anterior to posterior. And a kind of a way station for it is way back here at the back. That corresponds to our confluence of the sinus. What that basically means is there are a whole bunch of sources of blood all gathering together in one spot. So that's our confluence. We'll see other contributors to the confluence here. Take a look at our superficial middle cerebral vein. Here's a superior anastomotic vein and an inferior anastomotic vein. And they'll join together with a, a vein called the transverse sinus. The occipital sinus way at the back here, that also merges together with our confluence. Now the flow of blood from the confluence, an awful lot of it is going to be moving sort of laterally and anteriorly. And it's going to be traveling around this transverse sinus. It finds a short little sigmoid sinus. And then that turns into the jugular, which is going to exit through the jugular foramen. So that'll follow cranial nerves 9 and 10. So that's what it looks like on the lateral surface. On the medial surface, uh, things to look for here. Take a look at this structure down below. Here we had their superior sagittal sinus. We know we've got meningeal dura hanging below that between the hemispheres. And then within that Fox cerebri, that's where we're going to find our structure down here. That's the inferior sagittal sinus. And then we've got some additional veins as well. Here is our great cerebral vein, which is traveling underneath our corpus callosum. And then we've also got another vein over here. That is our basal vein. So that'll drain things like the temporal lobe and ventral surface of the frontal lobe. You'll notice that we've gathered our blood back here near the corpus callosum. And we're now going to form a straight sinus, which travels also back to our confluence. So those are some major venous structures that you'll run into from time to time. And at many of those you'll be able to see when you're looking at vascular imaging. Now, spinal venous structures here. Just a quick little topic here to finish this. And what we should look for here, something that looks a little bit like the vascular structures related to our arterial system in the spinal cord. A little bit more complicated in some ways, though. We've actually got one, two, three, four, five, six major spinal veins that we have to contend with. Three on the dorsal aspect and three down below. But you'll notice that they're highly anastomotic in nature. It's like we've got a web of veins surrounding the spinal cord. They operate at very low pressure. It's kind of like a, a river or a lake. And we should also notice that we have, it looks like some radicular veins. So those will be draining our, our nerves. And then we've got an anterior spinal medullary vein and a posterior spinal medullary vein as well. So those are the venous structures that are tied to our spinal cord. Try this one. Just give me a nod when you got through the reading there. Okay, most everybody's got through that. Okay, without giving you too many extra hints just now, so what kind of an issue have we got? This person is, has an intracerebral hemorrhage. So knowing nothing other than intracerebral hemorrhage, 
what are some blood vessels that might pop into your mind? Middle cerebral artery, some branches in the middle cerebral. And what were the popular choices from the middle cerebral? Who were those guys that tend to burst? Okay, so lenticular striatories. That's a good place to start. It certainly doesn't have to be these vessels, but it's a very good place to start. So let's suppose now, okay, he's recovered somewhat from some intracerebral hemorrhage of unknown magnitude. We don't know how big it is yet. But he complains of increasingly severe headaches. His spouse reports irritability and confusion. He is nauseated and he vomits. Now, what do those things together? Uh, what, what causes nausea and vomiting? Intracranial pressure is certainly something that we'd be worried about. So, intracranial pressure uh, says, following partial recovery from intracranial hemorrhage, what are some things that could lead to increased intracranial pressure? Okay, well... We could be dealing with edema, depending on how close to the injury we have. We, you know, maybe if it's uh, two days old or something like that, we'd have a lot of swelling in there. That's going to contribute to it. What about on the longer term? What about, say, days and weeks later? Somebody said it over here. What, what was the idea? You can, Ventric, okay. He was like, I'm only saying it once. You have to get it the first time. Okay, so basically, how would we then tie together the ventricular system with a hemorrhage? So, the, so his idea is let's follow the ventricular system and see if that's somehow involved in this continued development of manifestations that we're seeing. Well, let's find out. Let's, let's explore this a little bit. So first thing is, let's assume this is a pretty substantial event for starters, and we've got blood it's bursting into the lateral ventricle and what does blood do once it gets out of blood vessels it tends to clot up so if you've got blood that's spilled into the ventricle well it just does what blood normally does once it escapes and it wants to form clots but remember that if you're forming clots and there are narrow passageways that you have to circumvent you might wind up it's like putting a cork in some of these little passageways so what could have happened here is that we get a block of the lateral and third ventricle and so let's see it looks like we blocked that passage between the lateral and the third ventricle so that's that interventricular foramen and therefore we're no longer draining CSF from the lateral ventricle and then it starts to expand it's dilating and starts to compress structures so in this case what we're seeing is obstructive hydrocephalus that's secondary to a hemorrhage when we hear that term, obstructive hydrocephalus, what we mean is that something is blocking the flow of cerebrospinal fluid from within the ventricular system. So the places that we've looked at, how about our interventricular foramen of Monroe? You're inside the ventricular system and you've blocked the flow. That would be a case of obstructive hydrocephalus. Now, there are other forms of hydrocephalus. We'll talk about those in a short while. But that certainly seems to be a good explanation for this. Here is our patient. And it looks as though we've got a rupture here. Blood is spilled into the ventricle. Maybe even some is spilled over into the opposite side. But we see dilation of the ipsilateral ventricle. It's quite possible that a clot has formed within that interventricular foramen of Monroe, leading to dilation of that ipsilateral ventricle. So intracerebral hemorrhage with secondary obstructive hydrocephalus. Now, hydrocephalus, 
We've talked about the obstructive form, sometimes also called non-communicating. And things that can cause this, uh, you can have accumulations of pathogens, but also immune cells can plug things up. There can be uh, stenosis occurring, but also keep in mind that tumors can develop and just expand and wind up blocking those structures off as well. We also have some communicating forms of hydrocephalus. And basically what we mean when we're talking about communicating forms of hydrocephalus, we're assuming that we still have contact or communications between all of the ventricles. So the laterals are still talking to the third. The third is still talking to the fourth. So there's communication. Now, some different types here that we have to contend with. One is called normal pressure hydrocephalus. And this is something that occurs usually in older folks. What's happening is that, generally speaking, intracranial pressure is within normal limits, maybe high normal limits. And it oscillates a bit. It kind of goes up a little too high. But unless you're measuring exactly when it starts to peak a little bit, you don't catch it. You miss it. You measure. And the pressure is within normal limits. But even so, that sustained high level of pressure is sufficient to lead to dilation of the ventricles. And here, it's not unusual, actually, to see uh, cognitive deficiencies. Also, these folks start to walk a little funny. They have an odd gait. And there's one more feature of something, somebody that has normal pressure hydrocephalus that you should be aware of. Their pants are often wet. So how do you put together, then, the idea that they're having trouble walking and their pants are also wet? Okay, we've got an idea over here. Well, obviously, structures that are involved with the control of the lower portions of the body are damaged. We talked about a few of those, and I think we talked a little bit about the medial aspect of the frontal lobe. Maybe that is going to be affected as we get dilation of the ventricles. Now, we talked about subarachnoid hemorrhage. What happens in subarachnoid hemorrhage? Blood is already in the cerebrospinal fluid, but in the subarachnoid space. Maybe the clots are kind of blocking up the arachnoid granulations, and the cerebrospinal fluid can't actually get out of the subarachnoid space. That's another possibility. And then sometimes things to look for here, the problem isn't really ventricular. What's happening is the brain is just kind of dying away. And as it dies away, it shrinks. So what happens? Well, you're just replacing the dying tissue with fluid, so kind of by default, we have expansion of the ventricles. That's called hydrocephalus ex vacuo. So a situation where you'd see something like that would be in Huntington disease. So let's try this question. And hopefully this one works. Okay, let's find out what you think about this one. And it's, there we go. So it looks like about three quarters of you think it's an obstructive type, and about a quarter of you think it's a, a communicating type of hydrocephalus. 
This is actually much more likely to be an obstructive form of hydrocephalus, so we've probably got stenosis related to the cerebral aqueduct. Uh, what do you notice about the baby? Okay, the, the head is quite enlarged. Uh, what about the surface? You've got a lot of venous congestion there. Another thing to look for, too, if you open the eyes, the eyeballs are going to tend to be staring down. What's happened, you've got mechanisms inside your head. Some of them are interested in having you look up. Some of them are interested in having you look down. And in this case, we've damaged one of those systems that tries to help you look up. So by default, the, the eyes relax and they have a tendency to look down. So that's, they sometimes call that the sunset gaze. So that's what we're looking at. That's a fairly typical appearance of obstructive hydrocephalus in a baby. So that's all for today. I will see you again, I believe, on Wednesday.